Um, so this series is called 52. Um, so today is somewhat the intro to this series, kind of where we will be going in the net in the weeks ahead to kind of give you a little bit of a, um, you know, a premise and an inspiration for where this series is headed. It is actually taken from the book of Nehemiah. Um, we're not going to be doing like a verse-by-verse exhaustive study of the book of Nehemiah, but instead we're going to be taking principles from the book of Nehemiah, how they apply to us. Um, Nehemiah is one of my absolute favorite Old Testament books. Um, some people, they, they, we, we tend to lean more like on the New Testament because in the Old Testament it's a little hard to grasp and, uh, you know, some of the great stories of, you know, the, 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 the great people of old, the Old Testament, David, you know, we, we learn courage and how he's faced life. We learn about that. We learn about Noah's obedience to build the ark. We learn about Jonah and, and, the, and the great big whale. And, uh, and we, we hear these stories of people. But a lot of times, when, especially when we get into Leviticus, Numbers, we kind of tend to go, what in the world is happening? And what am I reading? And, um, because the narrative of the Bible is obviously God creates man, uh, mankind in His image, man and woman, and then we see later on we see you know, we see sin come in, we see the the birth of a nation Israel, and a lot of the Old Testament really surrounds what Israel was going through, and their they were God's chosen people and their relationship with God. And obviously, when you read Exodus and Leviticus, you see the laws that were put on them because of sin. Sinfulness came in, and so they had to be governed strictly by very tight laws. And so then you you, you get into the time of the prophets, and, and, and mainly the time of the prophets is when God is using prophetic voices to Israel to say, come back to God. You are veering off. You are running from God. You are doing your own thing, and I'm encouraging you to come back to God. Repent, come back to me, and the prophets were used that way. And in the time of the major prophets, we have the exile of the Israelites, where they are conquered, and they are spread throughout all over the region. They are held captive, and, and, and it's just a bad time for Israel. But even in the midst of that, there is redemption, there are some great things that are happening. We find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah in this season where Israel has been torn, our Jerusalem's been torn down, the people of Israel have been scattered. We have this man, Nehemiah, who is working for a foreign king. He is the top bearer of the king. But again, what I love about the Old Testament, we do have themes like we even have faith and, and hope and courage things that come out and speak to us in the Old Testament, but also there are types and shadows in the Old Testament that point us to the reality of the gospel. Because the intention of God was to always point us to redemption, right? Even from the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned, you know, God said, here, enjoy the whole garden that I've given you. You are to enjoy it, but don't touch of this tree because He gave them free will. And then they sinned against God, and, and here's what here's God's response. God's response was redemption, because He pointed them to the reality. Remember, there was a couple of things, there was a couple of types and shadows, where 
they were they were unclothed because they had no shame yet, and so they were unclothed. But then when they sinned, they realized their nakedness, and God Himself gave them clothing of animal skins, and so something had to die to cover them. You see the the, the, the foreshadowing, the, the the symbols of the gospel. Something had to die so that man's nakedness and shame could be covered. That's a type and shadow of Jesus, even in Genesis. That we all have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And here's God's response to that. It's He sent His Son. Something had to die. Jesus upon the cross. So that our sin could be covered. And when we put our hope and our trust and our faith and we repent of our sins and we turn to Him, He cleanses us. As Sue spoke about this morning, that when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So love in the Old Testament, we have these types and shadows that point us to a greater reality. Nehemiah, it's one of, it's one of those stories. It is, I think, a, a, a very glaring prophetic picture of the church, our place in the church, our work in the church. And you're going to see that kind of unfold in the weeks that pass. So, I, I, again, I love this story, and it does reveal the gospel. It reveals the good news of Jesus. It reveals how He can take a life. He can take a mess. He can take a broken-down heart. He can take something that people thought was shattered to a million pieces. How could you ever get it back? And He is a God who then can restore, rebuild, and redeem. I love that. You guys are going to have to get more excited about it in a minute. I've been excited for months for this series. You guys are going to have to join in with me. I'm excited about it. You see what God will do. And so this is for you individually. This is for me individually. What God wants to do in us. But it's also for others, the people that are around us. Maybe they're not here. But I encourage you to invite them. Pray for them. And let God give us a new sense of hope. So today we begin at the end. Isn't that going to be fun? We kind of begin at the end. Our key passage, it's not the end of the book of Nehemiah, but it is, it's the end of that first part of the story, which is kind of the main theme of the book. It ends with good news. I love endings with good news. If you read the end of Revelation, Jesus wins. He is seated on the throne. He is in heaven. He's ruling and reigning. He comes to the earth, and He will rule and reign everything, everywhere, for all time and for all eternity. I love to read the end of the book. I mean, you get to see the good news. It's triumph. Don't you love good endings to stories? Okay, call me whatever you want to call me, but... Do not recommend a movie or a book that has a really bad, bad ending, okay? Just, if you were ever going to recommend, get that off the list. Um, now, if it's a true story, I can give a little grace to that. That's something that has some sort of redemptive element. But if a movie or book ends bad, please don't give it to me. I don't know what it is about certain people that like that kind of thing, that we have this genre of tragedy. William Shakespeare, I mean, you know, the, I, you know I guess brilliant writing, but it, it's all ended bad. Romeo and Juliet could have been a way better story. I mean, come on. I, I, I could have written a better ending to that book. You know, the families get together. There's unity. They pray together. Romeo and Juliet get married. They have kids. And we have grandkids. And we see them all happy. And 
Because Athena and I, we, when we watch, we, we, we watch, she really likes the good innings. It's like, it, sometimes we see a couple that finally get together. But she wants to see them have kids and, like, you know, later on, you know, and it's like that the story continues. We, we like good endings to stories. Tragedy is a genre. Tragedy. Who, who, I mean, why would you ever think about that? Or want to, if you like that, sorry, but you're offended with me, forgive me, but I, I think you're weird if you just like it all, you know. And, and at the end, they all die. The end. I, I just can't think of a sadder, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I can't even read anything else right now. My family gets on to me because I, I, I give a little too much about movies, and so if you start talking to me about a movie that I've seen and you haven't, be very careful. Um, I, 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 I defend myself that I don't do that, but they, uh, they say that I give too much. I say, I don't give the whole thing. I, I just wanted to let everybody know it's going to be okay. But they said, that's too much. That's too much. I'm like, I, but I, it's in me to let you know. It, it's sad, but get through that sad part in the middle. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that was going to be sad. You'll make it. It's going to be good. Make it through that. So we're going to begin at the end of this story. And then we'll track back over the next few weeks to see why it ended well. So I'm excited about that. So let's go to Nehemiah 16. This is kind of our key verse in this whole series. I love it from Nehemiah 16. So on October 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after it had begun. So you guys were wondering where I got the 52 from. That's the series is from this passage. It was finished, the wall was finished just 52 days after we had begun. Now again, a little bit of historical context. Why were the walls broken down in the first place? You know, because Nehemiah gets word that they're broken down. We're going to look a little bit of that and we're going to jump into that next week. Because when he gets the word um, that they're broken down, you know, God uses him to... Um, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, and so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about unpacking the story a little bit. But to give you a little historical context, and I've already alluded to it a little bit, of why the walls were torn down in the first place. It's because at a time when God, again, was always speaking to His people, as He speaks to us, and thank God we have Christ, the mediator now, we have the Holy Spirit. But even back then, God would speak audibly to the prophets, and He would say, come back to God, and it was always to the people. Do it God's way. Come back to God. Turn from your sins and follow God. I mean, and that was what, and, and at this time, unfortunately, Israel, the people of Israel just kind of did their own thing. They just continued to march to the beat of their own drum. We don't need God, you know, and, and they were kind of roller coasters at the time when they would cry out to God and then they, they, they would get into seasons where they just forget God. We don't need Him. And so they were kind of going their own way. And so God used the prophets to say, okay, since you are bent on this, you're going to be captured and you're going to be scattered and you're going into exile. And this is the word of the Lord. Even Jeremiah, where he spoke to the king, he said, this is going to happen. Of course, then that king decides, okay, now we're, we're, okay, we'll do it God's way and we're going to resist. And even Jeremiah says, don't resist. It's futile to resist. But God is still going to use it. And we can see the good news of how God even changes the King Nebuchadnezzar. That was another situation when they went to exile. There's a wicked, godless king that God changed his heart. So God, even in exile, can use 
our trouble for His glory if we will turn back to Him. And so, inevitably, what God said would happen would happen. And, and Israel was taken down. The walls were torn down. The people were scattered and exiled. And, I mean, it was a bad situation. It was, you know, and, and, and parts of the wall were even worse, crumbled down after that. And people were sent to exile. Nehemiah was one of that group. And, and it was just worse. It was just a bad time. The walls represented strength. In that time, when a city had a large wall, it was, it was, it was strength and it was, it was peace. And it, was, and, and, and it spoke to our strength and it spoke to our protection. Because the, if, 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 a, if, a, if a, an army who was against the people would come, the first thing they had to do is, here's this wall that we have to contend with. And so Israel, the symbol of it, strength and protection were torn down. When we do our own thing and we reject God and we say, I'll live my own life, I don't need you, our strength and our protection are torn down. And we open ourselves up for the work of the enemy. And God always is saying, come back to me and do it my way. And so that's the reality of what has happened. They were overcome by their enemies. They were scattered. They were put in exile in different parts of the region. And the walls of Jerusalem were slowly torn down and became desolate. And so one of those men who was in exile named Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, he was in a place called Susa under the rule of Artaxerxes. Very similar time to Esther, um, the book of Ezra. You have kind of all of these things that were kind of happening around the same time. His job, he was the cupbearer to the king. He was a servant of the king. You know what a cupbearer would do. When they would bring wine in to the king, the cupbearer, just in case somebody was trying to kill the king, the cupbearer took the first drink so that the king would be saved if someone was trying to the cupbearer. So that was probably not a job that anyone would want to sign up for. Yeah, I'll be the cupbearer of the king. And you might die. But uh, so he gets word that Jerusalem's wall is broken down, and then God calls him to do something about it. And so over these next weeks, what we're going to be doing, we're going to look at what he and the people did to get to the point of Nehemiah six fifteen. Just fifty two days after we began, the wall was finished. And so I think it gives us some indication that in this passage that all the things were not good at all in those days. Because there's, there's, there is even a level of even how this is written. It says, like a surprising word, that surprising word, just. It only took just 52 days to rebuild the wall. And I think that the writer is, 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 is saying that things were bad and we're amazed that it only took 52 days. And so I think it points to how bad things exactly were. And so how long did it, you can almost see the writer, how long did it take you guys to finish the wall? Just 52 days. And I think, how is that possible? And we're going to see how it was possible. And so I wanted to start out by saying 52 isn't intended to tell us that if we commit to something that everything's going to be better in 52 days. 
please don't think that that's the point of this, uh, you know, commit your life for 52 days and beyond and see what God can do. And he can do whatever he wants in three days, two days, one day. We obviously know that he can do stuff in three days. Think about that for a second. Okay. I thought that was good, so. So don't get stuck on the idea of 52 days. It's intended to give us hope. It's intended to give us hope because if you think about a city wall being torn down and the people rallying together, believing God and getting to work, doing their part, they were able to rebuild the walls in 52 days. Doesn't that seem miraculous to you? Because it was. So it's intended to give us hope. And so as we unpack this story and we kind of track back and see what the things that the people did and, and what they went through, you will see some of these principles unfold and what the people were committed to as they got the wall rebuilt. What I love about this is the miraculous part. You will also see God doing His part. That's the supernatural. That's where it goes beyond our natural abilities. And I want to encourage you, as you pray and believe for God, believe God for the supernatural. Pray audacious prayers and believe God for the supernatural. Because a lot of times what we do, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, is we do what we naturally can do. And we go, well, I'll just do that. And we sometimes miss out on what God wants to supernaturally do. That He wants us to take the step. He wants us to do our part, but to believe Him for His part, which is way bigger than any of us could ever do. I love the Scripture, with God all things are possible. And so we see God doing His part, the miraculous. And so He does what we cannot. So I'm going to show you the, the, the components and principles that the people committed to and Again, we're going to look at these more in detail over the weeks ahead. So let's, let's go to the next slide. And this is kind of the principles of Nehemiah, what you can see God calling the people to, what he called Nehemiah and the people to. So let's look at number one. We're going to be talking about prayer. We're going to spend the first few weeks starting next week on prayer. Why we pray. How we pray. What's the point of prayer? Because the... Nehemiah began this whole, and again, I'm not going to get too much away, but uh, next week we're going to look at this, but he begins in a place of prayer. He begins in a place of, and, and, and prayer ultimately is relationship with God. How do we relate to other people? We communicate with them. By either speaking, or if people can't speak, there are forms of communication that we do. That's how we have relationships, and ultimately, prayer is relationship with God. I'm not going to give too much more than that, but you see Nehemiah begin at a place of prayer. He begins getting the heart of God. God, we need you, and what are you saying? So prayer is where we will begin. And then the next part we will go to is this, spiritual warfare. We are in a battle. Whether you believe that or not, there is a spiritual battle going on. And again, I'm not going to give too much away. We'll spend the next after prayer. We're going to spend some time with spiritual warfare. How to fight and overcome the enemy. Paul said that 
we are in a spiritual battle. He said, a, a, a battle, a war is not against flesh and blood. Now, the enemy tries to make us turn on each other, right? Division, offense, uh, you, know, you know, anger, bitterness towards each other. And Paul is kind of, he says, your battle is not against each other. Your battle is against spiritual forces. The enemy is trying to take out your heart. And he's trying to take out your spiritual life. How we battle the enemy. How we overcome the enemy. And so we're going to spend some time in spiritual warfare because the component of Nehemiah, you're going to see resistance and opposition to what God called the people to do. In your own life, when God calls you to something, when He's speaking, He wants you to walk in victory, and He wants you to walk in His plans and His purposes and His destiny, you need to know that because you're in a spiritual battle, the enemy's not going to just stand back and and just be okay with you walking in all God has for you. Now, that is not intended for us to live in fear, because as part of spiritual warfare, is not to live in fear. It's the reality, it's to live in victory. And so God calls us to a place of walking with Him and how to battle, how to, because just as in Nehemiah, there was opposition to the rebuilding of the wall. There was intimidation, there was threats, and you're going to see that unfold as we go through because they didn't want, the enemies of, of, of Jerusalem did not want the walls to be rebuilt. Just as, again, foreshadowing the pathetic picture, the enemy does not want us walking as God has for us. And then the third component we're going to look at is unity. And you've heard me talk a bit about unity, but we're going to dive into unity for a couple of weeks anyway, three weeks maybe. And we do all this together. You will see in Nehemiah where there is a profound dedication to the work, but to each other. And the people had a job to do, and God called them to do it, but they did it together. And this is about us doing this together. Again, the enemy wants us to fight against each other, turn on each other. God wants us to say, if you will get in unity, I will do so much that will absolutely blow your mind. Because unity, the power of unity, represents also the gospel of Jesus Christ. In John, Jesus said, let them be one, us. Be one, Father, as you and I are one, so that the world will know that you sent me. Unity is so huge, especially in the day and age that we live in. And then the last part that we're going to look at is commitment. As in the book of Nehemiah, there was a commitment that the people made. Again, unity, but we are committed to do what God has called us to do. And I believe that's why you have this prophetic picture almost at the local church. They were committed to the work that God has called them. Guys, the local church exists because Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit and it came and the church was born and so we exist to advance the kingdom but we do it together and we need commitment. We need commitment. We need to be all in of what God is calling us to do. And so commitment is us doing our part and taking responsibility to that which God has called us. And so as I'm winding down here today as we begin this series and, and I started this one the, 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 the title of this one was Let's Get Real because I want to begin it by taking a look at our own lives and our own hearts and let's get real with where we are at. 
I think the church needs to be a place where we can be transparent and vulnerable. It has not been a place, but I think we need to announce to the world that we are broken and we all need Jesus and invite them on this journey with us. But it's time to get real on where we are at, taking a look, an honest look at areas or aspects of our lives that may be broken, may be torn down like the, like the walls, may be hopelessly scattered. Because you're going to see Nehemiah, there's a reality where he does an inventory when God calls him to begin to rebuild. He looks around, and one of the first things he does after prayer is he does this inventory, and he begins to just look out, and he just takes this honest look and says, let's see where we're at. And this is broken, and that's shattered, and this is broken. We need to take an honest look at our own hearts and identify what God is, has His hand on in our own lives. Because there was a reality to how they got where they got. Again, they had turned from God. They had rebelled against God. They started doing things their own way, and the consequence was brokenness. And so, I, along with you, let's start this series off with honest transparency with God. Identifying our own lives where we need God's restoration, where we need His redemption. Areas in our lives, because I've had them too, where I'm so independent in these areas where I maybe not say it, but I live as if I don't need God in that area of my life. Identify. And I'm encouraging you to write, if you're, if you're, if you're not a person that likes to write, at least write this. And you don't have, you can do it right now or you can do it later. I'm believing God for, and it can be one thing that God has put in His hand on, it can be several things, whatever it is, but you write that down. You identify it. I'm believing God for this. Maybe it's my own part. Maybe it's, Lord, I have time to live just kind of my own way. My, I, need to, I, I need to get my heart right. I need to surrender to you in a fresh and new way. And it could be my own heart and my own life completely to Jesus. Maybe it's a relationship that's broken. I'm believing God for my marriage. I'm believing God for maybe a sibling, a child, a friend, maybe a relationship that has been broken down and you've been believing. Maybe it's a child who is far away from God. Maybe it's somebody else. Could be an area of life that you seem to battle over and over with little to no victory. Could be loss or pride or fear or dizziness or whatever that is. Look, I'm believing you for this, overcoming this area, rebuilding this area of my life. And I want to submit this area of my life to you so that you can help me rebuild and restore and redeem this to the glory of God. And maybe it's somebody that you are, you've been burdened for, and you've prayed for them and prayed for them and prayed for them, God, I'm believing, or for the rebuilding and the redemption of their hearts. And so I'm saying, let's walk together through this. Again, that's why we need each other um, to say, what are you believing God for? And I, I encourage you, as you write that down, or you know it, share it with someone. You don't have to share it with everybody, but Share it with someone that can pray for you and pray with you. Share it with a couple people that you trust in the Lord. I'm believing God for this. 
sometimes we're afraid to believe God for it. And we feel like that we've been down this path over and over. Maybe it's, you know, we've seen a little victory and seen more defeat than victory and, and it's very difficult and, and it seems maybe impossible. But I love that God loves our impossibility. That's where we can believe God to be impossible. Because He's the only one that can pull that off. He's the only one, Jesus is the only one that can show up at Lazarus who is four days dead. Remember that? I love that story. Jesus gets word, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus purposely waits. He doesn't go at once. He waits and these Lazarus, Mary and Martha, who were a, a sibling set that they loved Jesus, and he would stay with them, and he would go through that area, and he would, you know, he would became very good friends with them. And so Jesus gets word and says, "Lazarus, your friend Lazarus is sick." And Jesus says, "Let's just wait." And he waits. Lazarus dies, and he's four days dead when Jesus finally gets there. He's in the tomb. Now that story is, is awesome in and of itself that Jesus raises this man from the dead and we can believe God for that. But outside the miracle um, of just a human life because ultimately Lazarus dies again. But to believe that when Jesus steps into our situation that we think like when, when, when Jesus had removed the stone and they said he's been dead four days, he thinks by now this is impossible. Jesus says, back away. He begins to weep over the situation. He says, Lazarus, come for me. And this man came out in grave clothes, and Jesus said, you thought he was dead, but now I'm on the scene. But we believe God for the impossible, and we give our hearts and our lives to Jesus. That that was he thought stinks, Jesus can resurrect. Wow, I'm, I'm just way more excited than you guys right now, so... You're awestruck. That's very really nice. That's right, yeah. That's, uh, we're awestruck. That's, yeah, thank you, Carrie. You love me. I'm believing God for big things. And, 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 you know, the Lord has challenged my own heart because, again, I think I can tend to live life not very supernaturally. I love Jesus. I pray and read the Word that in preparing for this, I mean, a few months ago, I felt like the Lord challenged me, even in my own prayer time, my own relationship with Him, to say, what are you believing me for? What, what, are you, what, what is that thing that you think that seems impossible? What, what are you believing for supernaturally, miraculously? Now, again, I... I think sometimes these things are more about our hearts than it is about maybe getting what we think that we want. Sometimes God speaks to us in the midst of it, but to believe God for great things. It's challenging in my own heart. Because if we can pull it off, we don't need Him, right? And is that how we live out our faith sometimes? I do. I can pull this off. And God says, well, go ahead. You don't really need me to do that. That's in your own strength and your own energy. Go right ahead. Not that he's not blessing stuff and, and, and being with me. But sometimes I just live in that natural ministry ability. And he's saying, live in a supernatural place of believing me for big things. I want to need him to pull it off. 
I believe He's inviting us to do what we know to do. And again, you will see that God called the people then to do what they were called to do. They didn't just lay back and do nothing, okay? So this is not just about us like on the sidelines going, okay, God, do it. He called them to take steps. They had obedient actions. They worked and they fought. And they did what they were called to do, but then God did His call. And just 52 days, 52 days after they started, the wall was completed. And the people that, did, that thought this could not be done, it was done. Because the people did what they were supposed to do, and God did His part. Will you stand with me? God, I'm believing today, Lord, for victory, for redemption, for restoration. I'm believing you for the impossible. Lord, as we look at this story and we see, God, the reality of things that were broken down and, 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 and impossible situations and things that were considered shattered into a million pieces. And at one time in the story, there was some doubt. The people, they, they didn't think that they were going to be able to do it. And Lord, it's not our, it's not our doubts that, that uh, doubts are part of the process. I thank you that you work within our doubts and our questions. I think that that actually helps us build our faith. But Lord, that we would continue to run to you and believe you. And I pray for each part in here. I pray, God, Lord, that as we identify those areas in our lives, that we bring to you, God, and that you are going to rebuild, restore, redeem in the mighty name of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit. And so, Lord, we commit our hearts, our lives to you. We ask, God, that you would lead us and guide us. And, Lord, in these weeks ahead, as we dive in, Lord God, to the rebuilding of the wall, that, God, we would, we would once again, that you would use this story, Lord, that the 52 days is about hope. It's about believing again. It's about trusting you. Lord, it's about us doing our part, but it's about believing you to do that which we could never do. Lord, we honor you, we bless you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.